0: Brownstone Media Group is proud to bring you the best in entertainment and interviews each and every month. Listen to our podcast, View From The Stoop, on iTunes or SoundCloud. Check out our engaging and informative website at viewfromthestoop.com and join the conversation with our family on social media via Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're always striving to show the culture in a positive light. Welcome to the family. Welcome back family. This week we introduce or reintroduce everyone to a new family member who we hope will be coming around to Brownstone a lot in the future. Some of our more seasoned family members may recognize this week's guest from BET's Teen Summit, or you may have read his work in numerous media outlets around the country. Kenji Jasper has stopped by the stoop this week to have one of the better conversations that we've had in a while. We touched on topics ranging from his start in the business, growing up in the D.C. area in the 80s and 90s, the effect of gentrification in our communities, Jay-Z or Nas, and his new book, and so much more. So make yourself a drink and sit down and enjoy this one. It's going to be good. As always, check out ViewFromTheStoop.com for more great content and to let us know what you think. And you can also find us on Instagram at BrownstoneMG and on Facebook. That's enough about us. Let's get this one started. So first of all, family, um, we have a new family member. Uh, I'll let you choose. You want to be cousin, uncle, brother? Uh, I'll, I'll
1: be I'll be cousin.
0: Okay, cousin. <laughs>
1: I'll
0: be cousin. We got a new cousin. That's <laughs> my man, Kenji Jasper. Um, please, for anyone who grew up under a rock and never saw, I, see, I'm gonna. Give up the lead a little bit. Never saw Team Summit back in the day when BET was popping. If they haven't, well, you
1: got to be, you gotta be of, of a certain age.
0: Hey, look, <laughs> we're not going to put an age on it. But, <laughs> but, but, yes, you do have to be of a certain age. If you didn't know about Team Summit, um, we're sorry you missed that one. I think you could probably still find some of it on, on YouTube somewhere. But um, yeah. please introduce yourself. Tell everybody uh, who you are, uh, what you do, and how you got to where you are.
1: All right, uh I am Kenji Jasper. Um originally from uh Southeast Washington DC, born and raised. Uh I'm novelist, journalist, poet, uh every once in a while house party caterer, uh television writer. I do a lot of different things, um, most mostly surrounding the written word. I started very young. Um, you know, you mentioned Teen Summit, but I, I had the privilege of being on two different show, you know, television shows as a kid. And that opened a lot of doors for me to go into journalism, which is what I really wanted to do. The first show was a little local show called Newsbag on Fox. And then two years later, I ended up um, you know, being a founding cast member on Team Summit. And that led me to some opportunities with uh, YSB Magazine and later, Vibe, XXL, Source, Essence, um, Newsday, national public radio uh, i've I've done a whole lot. I am author of now a total of eight books um, and and sort of my primary sort of work is in consulting, strategy, and writing um in film and television. but um notion Avenue is the first book I'm publishing with a major publisher in about ten years. Um very excited about it. Uh, like I said, I love creating and I think I think I kind of having had such a busy life needed some time to sort of hibernate and, you know, get some more life experience. And, and when I sat down to write again, you know, I was, I had a completely different perspective, at least on myself. Um, And I don't know, I I think as a writer, you can't really, no matter how good of a journalist you are, Um, you can't really understand your creative work until you understand yourself. And this book began, I think, a process of me really getting to know me that was sort of different than, I think, my approach to anything I had done before that.
0: I want to circle back around to um, where you are now, but I want to talk about, you kind of came of age and, well, for our generation, Every generation thinks that they have the best time frame, you know, whatever 20, 30 years that they had where they were popping, they feel like that was the best generation. But I think arguably um, people will say the 90s, late 80s, like, say, 88 to 97 were a golden era for uh, urban music, urban uh, fashion, urban print. You kind of came of age during that time. was there an understanding that this was something that kind of hadn't been available to to people of our age before?
1: You know, one of the things about growing up in, in, you know, D.C. or the DMV proper, as it's called now, is that one of the things it's very easy to take for granted is being surrounded by people of color. And, you know, having access to Black art, Blacks in politics, Black police, everyone looks like you, so... I think I lived in a bubble in a sense that I had always been a kid that found a way to do what it was I wanted to do. I had great parents that helped me to do that. So what I saw at the time, and I, you know, I'm sort of moving into your question was I was, I had a constant need to create, you know, and when, and all these things were bubbling and popping up, um, that were great things. You know what I mean? You know, hip hop was this just, I won't call it an embryo in the nineties, but it was a, it was a toddler, you know, mm-hmm. it was just sort of coming along and, and getting its legs. And you had, you know, that Afrocentrism movement that was sort of happening from 88, you know, going into, I'd say 95, you know, so you had all this music, all this culture, you know, from public enemy, Boogie Down Productions, Arrested Development, X Clan, Intelli- Tragedy, Intelligent Hoodlum—you you had a lot of commentary about a world and a, a really tough time for Black America. Truthfully, I, I think all these years later, you know, we see, we look back and say, "Oh, that was a time of all this great creative work came out." It was also the height of the crack era, where it was just, you know, gunshots and ODs, and you know, murder rates were through the roof. It was a time where, regardless of what class you came from as a as an African American youth, you know, or where you lived, you were touched by what was a really rough plague that I think, you know, sort of twenty years later now in hip hop is kind of glamorized, you know, and folks are real sorta of casual about the dope game and everything else. It's just sort of hey, well this is what you rap about. And I think My memories of it, yeah, I I love the art, you know, especially, you know, because I don't think that that millennials can even understand the idea that there was a point in time when you could not hear anybody rapping on the radio, Mm
2: -hmm. you
1: know, that there were these, you know, you would listen to these stations, no rap on this station, that kind of a thing. And it was great because the music was underground. You had so many different styles and flavors. And as a writer and as a journalist, I had a chance to meet so many different people. It's, it's different now, whereas you might you might have you know a thousand guys who who put an album out on SoundCloud or more than that now, you know. But back in that period of time, all the albums that came out, whether you bought it or you didn't, everyone knew about it because the avenues were were so much smaller. You know, you had a handful of black television programs. You were lucky if there was one movie you know a couple movies a year that came out sort of really targeting a black audience like things it was great in terms of the creative output that you had to have you had to be that good to get on and um it was really inspiring and I think it also I think that art and culture really documents the era well um from from the upside of it being let's just say like you know in living color on television or um you know, Living Single or, you know, the tail end of the the Cosby show. Mm -hmm. To the downside of, you know, Mob Deep, N.W.A., um, earlier on, Ice-T, Just Ice, um, Stop the Violence Movement, all these records that were really documenting this idea that, you know, at any given point, man, you know, no one felt dudes did not feel safe in the street unless they either had, like, more than three guys with them. Or unless you know unless they had heat in the trunk on them, what have you, because things were constantly jumping off, and I think that was the reality that was the world that I was coming up creating in, and so yeah, it was it was definitely inspiring a lot a lot was happening, but it wasn't glamorous to me
2: <laughs> right. you know what i
1: mean like i I think i when I talk to younger guys about this, it's sort of like when it was a normal thing to just every day of the week to just see the funeral parlor, just packed and spilling over with young people, you know, going to see someone else who had passed away or, you know, you know, when metal detectives were first introduced in schools or the fact that when you're going to bed at night, the, the sounds outside are always accented by, you know, just gunshots, you know, automatic weapons, whatever going off, shell casings, all those things, you know, were very unique to that time period. I think as as and not not I mean the Rockefeller charges, a lot of the other things that put a lot of the drug kingpin's way changed the streets, you know, in a lot of ways. And you know, not to say that it's ever safe in, you know, in urban America, but but when you weren't having these turf battles um right. and, you know, all the once the kingpins were locked away, and it wasn't this glamorized America's most wanted kind of a thing. You know, when when when, when by the time Bad Boy Entertainment came around, and you know Biggie and Puff and all of that, things it kind of chilled out.
0: There was a shine on it at that point.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. It was it was it was commercialized. It was accepted. Before then, man, you just never knew what you were going to get, and that really inspired. You know, sort of bring it back back to sort of center my work as an artist. Because, you know, being a reader of books, um, what I saw was a baby boomer generation and, you know, that looked down upon what we were creating. You know, they thought hip and hip hop and rap were dirty. You know, literature about those things, no one was interested in that. Who wants to read a book about, you know, black kids in the streets, you know, shooting each other? Who wants to, you know, this is going to pass. This is a terrible thing. You know, no one, we shouldn't glorify this by printing a book about it. And that was kind of the attitude that existed, you know, for a good period of time. And I'm, you know, and it, it gave way to a lot of beautiful things. But those of us who were kind of on the front lines and were the pioneers that got through the through the gates, um, none of us had easy times. You know, none of us.
0: So how did you find your voice? When did you, I guess, come into it?
1: You know, I, I think I was, I was fortunate in that um, I was in a summer program. There used to be a program called DC Artworks, which was sponsored by the um, Mayor's Summer Youth Employment Program. And so, you know, more or less, if you were in DC Artworks, you could go downtown um, to, to the arts building. I forget the name, Stables Art Center and, you know, you would get paid for summer to take these arts classes. And I was in a creative writing class, uh, sponsored by it's called the Institute for the Preservation and Study of African American writing. And so for six weeks or eight weeks, however long it was, we sat in a room and wrote. Uh, whatever was on our minds, you know, just whatever, you know, there wasn't there weren't a lot of limits. Our our instructor on Nicole Stevens was only 23 at the time and so we just really you know and I was from southeast you know there were two sisters young sisters in there who you know uptown girls who went to you know um, private school Um there were so many different backgrounds that what the idea of writing something down that was my story and reading it in front of people and people being moved had been a thing that sort of was consistent for me probably from the time I was nine on. But when you, st- when, you know, when you're in a teen and you start writing stories about, you know, killers and shootings and love and tying all these things together that were reflective of the world around me, um, a world that wasn't accepted as a whole, it was kind of like someone has to speak for us. You know, someone not only has to speak for, you know, all of us good kids that, do well in school and wanted to do something to uplift black people. But the way I saw it, you know, the folks who were celebrated were, you know, the hustlers, you know, the dudes that were driving up in Lamborghini, Lamborghinis at Marlo Heights movie theater, or, you know, had the hottest girls or town in Georgetown, you know, buying Gucci or buying a girl's Fendi and wearing 15 pairs of sneakers. All this was like a. It was a different world for me because I grew up in a working class household. But those were the superstars in the world where I lived, and I felt like their stories needed to be told too. And on the buses and the trains, as close as I was, as I could get to it, you know, I wasn't, you know, I, I had I had pretty strict parents, but I, you know, I've always been an observer, so I would listen to conversations, I'd see what's happening on the street, you know, I would talk to folks. And my whole point was that I understood that my experience, you know, as, you know, an honor roll student was unique. You know, that there was another kid just like me without the same parental support in a tougher neighborhood, you know, pushed against the wall one time too many, you know, that could very easily pull the trigger on someone and have his life changed. um, that was sort of where my very first book came from when I wrote it when I was um, 21 years old. So I think that that kind of became my mission statement. And from 94, you know, to, to, the two, to the early 2000s, I mean, that's, I think that was generally my focus to kind of try and create stories that reflected the hip-hop generation. Um, I was, you know, I, and I feel like I was very successful in doing that. Um, particularly in a time period
0: how did you job that with like you were on television at the time so you're seeing you got what i can only imagine is one life during the week and then the weekend hits and you're recording and you're filming you're sending something out to the world um how did you stay authentic doing all of that
1: well <laughs> it's kind of funny you know it <laughs> and i'm not laughing at you it's just yeah. The whole staying authentic thing. I think my life was so, was so much of a bubble. What I mean by that is, is that the guys I grew up with in my neighborhood, uh, which is Fairfax Village um, in Southeast DC, weren't when I you know I changed schools. You know, my, my mother was a teacher and didn't want me going to sort of the neighborhood school, so I would always had to take these trucks to the other parts of the city. Um, always, you know, sort of. Uh, schools for academically developed or creative people or what have you. So my high school was very removed from what was happening in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so, like, when I started doing the show, uh, which I started doing it technically when I was in the eighth grade, I was already sort of out of the center of chaos that was happening in the neighborhood. You know, the way the bus I took brought me home sort of through the backside of where everything was happening. Like, I would see it all uh, as I was walking my dog. It's kind of interesting. I sort of worked that into, into the book, which we'll talk about. But I would see it all, but I kind of had this removed sentiment. I was aware enough that it was all happening, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't boxing with dudes in the street. You know what I mean? Like, that wasn't, you know, I was a smart kid. It was kind of almost like, we need to keep Kenji away from a lot of this. Kenji's not going to, you know, Kenji's parents aren't going to let him, you know, do this or what have you. So I was, you know, I was much, much more of an observer. Right. But the thing that was that was weird about TV uh, is that I did understand that other people saw me very differently than I saw myself. Um, going into to television studio and recording and uh, BET in particular, which was a national broadcast, you know, I still woke up every day, you know, putting my pants on the same way. Um, I didn't, you know, we didn't get paid um, to do the show. So, you know, it wasn't like I was like balling out of control with money where all my gear was fresh or, right. you know, anything like that. No, I had like, you know, I was fresh for the show. <laughs> 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 but but the realities of my life, um, you know, it's kind of, you know, realities of my life were such where, I think I was always trying to do things that that just spoke to all these other kids like me who I didn't see or who I didn't encounter. That that was probably the most rewarding thing, finding out about T-Summer and also about writing for BT's magazine, YSB, was that when I went to college and afterwards in my 20s, you know, people would knew my name like, like, oh, man, like, you know, I lived in Nebraska or. I lived in Houston or I lived in Washington state or wherever it was, but I read those things and I remember your name. Mm -hmm. You I remember all the things you wrote or even I remember the things you said, you know, we were on the show, you know, getting letters from, you know, guys who were locked down in prison, you know, getting fan mail from people who I would end up going to college with. And furthermore, it let me know why, like, you know, the world is so much beyond DC,
2: you know, like,
1: there's this whole black America that's out there and we all are going through the same things. And I can't just be focused on, you know, DC and hoping that, you know, I mean, DC is a very insular kind of culture. So it was like, you know, there was a plan for you as a guy growing up in DC. If you got out, you know, you got a job working for the government, you know, you put in your 20, your 30, you got a house in the County, you know, you got fat, you know, Went to go-go when you're young, you know, take your wife to cabaret when you get older. It was really, you know, you know, Crabs on 4th of July is very, very simple, very basic. There were things that D.C. people did. But I was meeting people from all over and learning all these other kinds of cultures. And it was like, there's a world out there that I need to explore, you know, in all different ways that I could. And I think that was what... And then you would meet people, you know, um and people would had a celebrity, oh my God, oh my God, like, I can't believe I'm meeting you, or, you know, just sort of run up to you, and this, that, and the third, and I'd things on TV that I, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I'd never would You know, like I was, you know, I was a dude that, you know, confessed that he was a virgin on national television. Oh my God, I don't know
2: what I'm thinking. <laughs> but,
1: but, but, but what I mean is that by the time I got to school, it was, I had to accept the fact that once you're on TV, there's no real going back to not being visible. There's always a certain eye that stays on you after that. And even now, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm in my 40s now. That is the first thing that will come up, you know, when, when people hear my name, when they'll see me, they'll see that, Bennett, because it was such a big thing, you know, for those first four or five years for me. I mean, because, Every rapper, every singer, a lot of actors came through the show and we met them. You know, uh, in those in those four years I met almost everybody. Hey, that's Tupac in the in the break room over there. Because the other thing that I did while I was there was um I I started hanging out with the tech crew, camera guys, sound guys, producers. So I would come up there during the week and, you know, get to learn some other things did a couple of voiceovers. It was just kind of like, wow, like this is black entertainment and I want to have a piece of it. I want to be part of it.
0: I think what was beautiful, um, cause I, I kind of have a similar, um, experience. Um, uh, full disclosure. I grew up out there in the County, as they say. And, um, mm-hmm. but I was still the kid that was sent off to the private school when everybody else was going to public school. You know, That was a thing. Like, are oh, they going to public school? <laughs> like, um, and you know, I was out there in PG. I oh, like around around where, just could. oh, Fort Wash. Okay, all right, nah, all right, yeah. all right. I got you. So, um, I think for for me especially, there's a uh, every person has to decide for themselves what it means to be black in America. And I think we were blessed to have things like Teen Summit and um, Different World, when you could see that and you would get the the view of what it meant to be going to a HBCU. Or uh, living single, you could be a young uh, urban guy and, and have a good job and still be, you know, down with your people and things like that. And I think Teen Summit uh, in those early years too definitely showed you like you don't have to be one particular way to be, quote unquote, black and real. Right. Um,
1: it was. It was really. Oh, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. It, you know, just just the way that they they picked us. You know, um, because they sent these applications out to all the schools in D.C., private schools, public schools, um, some junior highs, a lot of high schools, and they put us in this conference room with BT, and they just sort of threw out topics about how we felt about certain things that were happening, and it was like this battle royal, you know, all these different young black kids just sort of saying their opinion, arguing, going back and forth, and. I think the producers were looking for the most vocal people, and in addition to you know, I'm sure how we looked on television or how we sounded, or have you? But it was like for those of us who had been, you know, spokespeople, whether it was student government or whatever it is, this was like, man, you know, this is our chance to really be heard. And you don't, you know, in the black community, man, there's not a lot of that. Mm-hmm. I think there was probably, you know, I mean, now you got social media. Everybody's got in a pen. With every post, every 15 seconds, but to have an hour, you know, and you know, or 45 minutes every Saturday, or at least a couple times a month, where you said something, and it literally went out to hundreds and thousands of people. Like there was nothing like it, um, and I, I can only imagine, kind of the thrill that comes from you know, being a rapper or, um, being a performer of any kind, because it's just that much more intense. Um, and, you know, having had similar experiences, uh, yourself, mm-hmm. we were, you know, it, but I mean, the, the county changed, you know, the county was sort of a lot more peaceful all the you know, in the time I was in high school, it mm-hmm. sort of changed not long
2: after that. Mm-hmm.
1: But I think that, um, what even the experience that we had, you know, here in this, in in all parts of the city was just so different than black folks who were literally stuck in the black part of town, Mm -hmm. you know, where there was one thing to do, you know, there wasn't a party that might, it might be, there might be 10 parties in a given night in high school Mm -hmm. all around, you know, you're not, you know, it was five black people in this town. They're all hanging out you know <laughs> every weekend at the same place. Or, you know, you know, like I said, it is a very different different thing. That's it's why I love I love where I'm from, you know, so much because here, Baltimore, Detroit, you know, certain parts of New York, um, certain parts of LA, it's a very unique experience that we have. Right. Uh and and I think that it's very easy for, you know, younger folks now to assume Oh, it's always been like this, man. We can do whatever it is we want. You know, after, you know, 1968, you know, black people was good. No, sir. No, sir. We <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> no, that, that wasn't, wasn't. Oh, yeah, well, you know, I saw Rodney King on YouTube. I was like, yeah, but you don't know what that meant before every time they videotaped the black. Like, it was the first time. Like, oh, man, like, this happened? And it was on tape? You know? <laughs> it was it was really like, man, like, okay. It really, you know, nothing's really changed. No. Uh, we, we've, you know, socioeconomically, things have changed. You know, there's a lot more people, and, you know, it's kind of funny that he's a bad word now, but living that Cliff Huxtable, you know, life, Right. it's a lot more of us doing it publicly, you know, kids wearing, you know, people's 16-year-old daughters is wearing Christian Levitons at school. You know what I mean? But, in mindset. You know, the same struggles are happening on a political level. You know what I mean? And and, and so it's it's like as much as we hope that the landscape is going to be also different, nah I mean the fight is the same. It's just the question just becomes where exactly is it that you're fighting? You
0: know? I was going to save this for later, but I think you've kind of touched on it um the the city that you grew up in and I grew up, you know, moving in and out of on a regular basis. It's not the same city anymore. Um, And I don't think that's, it's unique to D.C., but it's also not unique to uh, the culture in general. Um, gentrification is a word that, it, I mean, ultimately it's just a word and, and what it means. And the consequences of it are different than the meaning of the word. But gentrification is a real thing. And D.C. is not the chocolate city that it was 30 years ago. People can't afford those houses. Uh, I I was talking to a guy the other day, and he he said he was moving to New York. And uh, I said, where are you going? He said, well, you know, Harlem, but not the, you know, not the shifty side. I'm sorry, dude. (laughs) What did you just (laughs) say to me? (laughs) Because for those of y'all who are listening and don't really understand what he just said, he meant the side without the blacks. Right. Um, but cities are changing and Latinos, right <laughs> <laughs> like, like not the shifty side is code we're gonna do code on a whole nother podcast but uh gentrification is real and i i was watching one of your clips on instagram and i think your your book the newest one touches on that as well
2: correct yeah
1: I, you know i lived in i lived in brooklyn for for 10 years uh from 1999 until uh Well, technically nine and a half, so almost the end of 2008. And I, you know, when I moved to Crown Heights and Bedford-Stuyvesant there, uh, they were still very vibrant, you know, African-American Caribbean neighborhoods. And I I wanted to be somewhere that was not trendy, you know, where I could interact with the kind of folks I was used to doing my laundry and not, you know, running people from work or whatever it was. And I watched it transform it around, you know, sort of simultaneously as it was transforming here. As, you know, black folks found more opportunities in affording affordable housing outside of the cities and the burbs or what have you. Um, not a lot of economic redeve- development or redevelopment happening. Um, a lot of us sleeping at the wheel when it came to political involvement and seeing what was happening in real estate. You know, the economy took a dive for a long period of time and the only thing that was left to make money was you know development and redevelopment and you know whether it was by choice or whether it was just being late to the bell we gave up a lot or were, you know or pushed out of a lot of property and you know the folks that can't afford can, could afford it and wanted to move into a new place and be closer to work or to be in a quote-unquote vibrant cultural enclave that put them in the middle of something that was historically not white, but they got to live there, became a thing. And you're right, it's going on in in almost every major city in this country, less so in Philly, less so in Houston, not so much in Atlanta because of the way those cities are built. Mm-hmm. But everywhere else, you know, you have the same thing. I mean, it, I've, you know, being, being, having been in D.C. Uh, since, for the most part, pretty consistently, since 2011 just going for walks every day for cardio just seeing the landscape change just seeing you know where the poor folks end up uh seeing how quickly houses are sold which houses are sold and where um it's it's a big shake-up man mm-hmm. you know what i mean the fact that if you want to listen to go-go here you got to go to oral
2: yeah, that's a you shame. Yeah, you
1: know, but 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 that's in on one way. At, mm. In the other way, hey, when the city was ours, you know, yeah. you want to go into the black hole, or the capital city pavilion, or highbacks, you better you better bring a vest, right? You know,
0: and like at least five dudes.
1: At least, at least. I mean, and being that honest with you, I wasn't go I wasn't allowed anywhere near most of those places. I know what they look like from the outside. I've seen the pictures. But 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 I think the thing is, is that I am happy that black people are not being shot down in the street here every day. Right. Uh, you know, it's great that, I, that there is, you know, Thai food in this neighborhood where beforehand there never would have been. You know, as a person, I can't complain about that. But I can say that when you see the new residents who don't have a sense of the city's history, you know, who do some of the purse question, some of the oblivious, oh, I'm going to pretend like, I don't really know what to say with you because Obama ain't president anymore. And, you know, you got a hoodie on and, you know, I know what that meant from, you know, Willie Horton in 92, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, racism and prejudice are subtle, man. You know, and I and I, it's sort of like, well, this is our city now. Okay, yeah. I can't really argue with it. Your deed is on the house. You know, you want IPA, craft beer, at you know, the bar on the corner. Hennessy's not going to be served there in, you know, heavy and high rotation. Right. So, like, I'm not, you know, but like I said, I accept these things because I'm at a certain age now as a reality. You know, I'm not as angry about about it about it, let's just say I would have been five or six years because there are a lot of things that we, as a community continue to not do. you know we we don't stay on top of our political representation a lot of the time.
2: you know, we don't
1: pay attention to what's happening in our community in terms of what's getting licensed what's opening up what's closing hey half the time we just trying to survive we don't pay attention but if you weren't at that city council meeting where they decided to turn that whole block into condos or a starbucks or whatever you don't see it coming you know because it's probably going to come to your block next or if not your block you know parking is going to be different there's a whole lot of interrelated things that that just being an aware adult person in this country requires. And I think when we had a hood, sometimes we aren't always able to be as circumspect about it as we should, you know, and the best thing we can do is to try to encourage the current generation, you know, and their children, you know, to have different set of eyes and to be more involved in, you know, all those things.
0: Well, I think that, um, the number one thing people should understand about gentrification is that gentrification is, is for the most part, a natural process. People move into an area and want to make it look better. And I have no problem with gentrification as a concept. But the reality right. being, the people who live there wanted better policing when they lived there, not after they're gone. Right. They wanted exactly. better amenities when they lived there, not after they're gone. They don't want to drive back to their old neighborhood and see a Starbucks. They wish the Starbucks had been there when they lived there. Uh, exactly,
1: and it and it, it's even it's even. I think the funniest thing to me here now is the police. Mm-hmm. Um, the cops are bored, and what I mean by that is, is that any kind of call, whatever, man. I, and I, I I told someone the story not that long ago. I came out of the train, and you know it was tape up, you know, and the sirens everywhere, and. You know, I was like, man, somebody got shot. Somebody got shot. Right. You know, so just sort of first person I see standing in the corner, I said, yo, man, what's going on? And I oh, man, you know, you know, somebody stole an old lady's purse.
2: No.
1: (laughs) I kid kid, kid you not. And I was like, there was tape up. I kid you not. Like, whatever happened. Now, hey, look, I didn't see a woman wheeled off in in an ambulance Mm or anything like that. But there was such a fuss over how this had happened. And there was such a strong police presence. Somebody gets pulled over, three, four cops will pull up. You know what I mean? You have a domestic domestic disturbance call, the block is lit up with cops now. You know, there are, there are a lot of them. And there isn't, you know, anything for them to do other than to make, you know, to enforce traffic laws and to keep things as peaceful as possible. That's not to say that people aren't still, that I'm cheering, hey, bring back the murder rate from, you know, 88.
0: No, let's not bring that back.
1: No, no, let's not.
0: Let's leave that where that is.
1: Not. It does exactly, it, but, but, but it is kind of like, wow, man, this is just a really, 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 you know, different planet, you know? And and hey, but this 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 is, I think this is the sad part. Now you go out and you see how things are in Farsville or Marlow Heights or Iverson, you know what I mean? For a time, you know, I I lived in PG part of the time my dad lived out there Mm -hmm. and to see what some of those hoods have turned into, because, you know, folks that can't afford the city, you know, brought the hood right out beyond the border. Mm -hmm. And this is not, you know, say they glorifying it or you should, you should shun that or, Anything like that, but it's to say that there are certain things that happen in you know declared urban areas, whether it's d c or Maryland, that folks don't always know what to do about it um and you know as a as, as a whole like you said i mean it 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 happens it's it's a product of of just how
2: neighborhoods and areas change um but in the same way um there's a
1: lot more that i think that's my thing there's a lot more we need to ask for sooner Mm -hmm. we shouldn't wait for the bulldozers to show up and for us to not recognize our old blocks before we start decide before we decide hey our neighborhood is worth fighting for and i think that was kind of maybe the subtext of um the elements in, in, in Nostrand Avenue that, that sort of deal with property and deal with real estate and deal with, you know, how there are condos on top of condos, you know, how with technology there's a continued separation between the haves and the have-nots and running out of space and, you know, in equal distribution of resources in a lot of different ways are par for the course in 21st century economics but the thing is, is that what we get to decide every day is how we choose to battle. You know, we're a very intelligent community. You know, sometimes we need the coalition build. you know, uh, the the Latino community should not be our enemies at this point in time, you know, like-minded individuals who support our agendas should be collaborated with, you know, if, when you're fighting wars, or you identify problems, and a group of people agree, sometimes it doesn't matter that what they all look like if you all agree to work toward solving the problem.
0: I, I that's a good segue into talking about the book. I definitely want okay. to, because um, it's a it's such an interesting concept that I think that it kind of harkens back to the um, early date. Well, not early days, but uh, one of the first jobs I had fresh out of college was at a bookstore and I would always be fascinated by like Octavia Butler and uh, Walter Mosley and how they had this very Af- Afrofuturistic look at um, fiction and I think this falls in line with that in right. a way um, please explain a little bit more about the book
2: okay Um, Notion Avenue is uh, it's a story of a
1: guy named um, uh, his nickname and he's from d c uh he moved to new york uh for a period of time in his twenties and it's it's it it's it kind of exists in a world where uh your your bioelectric or your spiritual aura um has a certain numbered ranking um depend number is some you know most of, most people are you know go about the world in the same way, but um, you know, auras can block bullets, auras can help you move through walls, uh, auras can help you read other people's feelings. Um and one of the ways to develop um your aura, the best way to develop your aura is through yoga and meditation and things these things like that. But Kango, despite kind of how Eastern kind of esoteric those ideas are. I mean, he's a he's a street guy. Um, what he's good at doing is he helps folks in the underworld sort of plan heights, you know, get away with crimes. So he creates a plan for how they can more or less put together the perfect job. And he's sort of this freelance guy in the neighborhood that folks will come to to solve problems in this way. Um, when he was a younger guy when we sort of first meet him, um, he's twenty and it's kinda like just sort of showing off what he can do in this way to think that um he's not drawing the attention of other people who are taking notice to what
2: he does.
1: offers him a chance to make some money, uh, to do what he does best. And, you know, before before he knows it, he finds himself in the midst of a very big conspiracy slash adventure which takes him back to his past and things that happened 15 years before um and moves him sort of forward having to team up with both some old and new allies uh to try and solve a big mystery um that's sort of unfolding in both worlds of his life so like it's it's really sort of the first volume is about him coming to peace with who he was as a younger man, um, relationships that didn't work, um, both decisions he made and decisions he didn't make. And then, you know, an older guy who's in his 40s, kind of trying to move forward with his life, realizing that he can't just walk away from what he's best at. And um, he agrees to trust some people who he normally never would uh, so that they can all embark on how can I say this, Well, they can all embark on an experience that will not only help themselves, but help their community. So it's like, it's it's like, you know, it, there are erotic elements, there are looks into religion, um, a number of different characters you sort of get a chance to see both in in two different aspects of his life. I mean, his best friend uh, and sort of partner in crime is a sister named Kujo uh, who's very pretty but at the same time sort of very, very thug and the one person that he can really depend on and trust. Um, it's kind of a really wild ride. Like I think if you could if you could take like a, a Harry Potter book and set it up in the middle of like a Quan, Shannon Holmes, Vicky Stringer kind of a novel, like that's kind of what you have. So, you know, you got all these different street level sort of individuals who are interacting with this oral world. And you got a guy that's getting over one woman, you know, trying to sort of meet another one. So it exists on a lot of different levels. Um, but it's, I, I, I've gotten a lot of really good feedback from it. And I think that, um, I think there's definitely something that you, you'll enjoy reading, even if you're not a really big book reader.
0: Right. Well, I, First of all, let me just say I like th- the theme of the book, but I think anyone who's never uh, experienced your writing or anything like that, there's a sort of lyricalness to it. Um, almost like a best way I can explain it is like a rhyme pattern. Uh, even when they're not purposely rhyming, uh, every rapper has a cadence, every rapper has a kind of a movement to their, to their voice. I think your writing has that same st- uh, style of movement. Is that something you try to do on purpose or that's just how you naturally put words on paper? I think
1: I I think I think started out, you know, sort of the journalism is on one end, but I think creatively I was a spoken word kind of poet um, in high school and in college. And I think being such a fan of hip hop, you know, I always wanted to kind of have these bends and twists on lines, not so much that they rhyme, but, you know, alliteration and those kind of things that kinda of tie in visuals that everyone would know, uh, for them to make the point. I mean, I do it a lot on, on Instagram, you know, now just as these sort of warm up exercises. But I think I try to take things that everyone would know, whether regardless of your race, regardless of your age, and use that to make my point. I think I remember the other day as an example, uh instead of saying um you, you finish up the night you know eating pancakes with your crew you know and going home alone i sort of said you know polishing off a short stack with your crew and taking a macaulay culkin back to brooklyn
2: you know right.
1: everybody knows macaulay culkin home home alone like right. that kind of i think to get to give listeners an example like that's kind of my take you know i'm i I'm a real big fanboy star wars star trek uh Lord of the Rings, all those things, and you know as a brother, you don't always have um those aren't always necessarily considered these really black things, but I use them to sort of frame the ideas in a way where it's like even if you're not into that, you might want to check that just to see what I meant so i think i I think I've taken a lot from rappers, uh probably. I probably give hip-hop a lot more credit for my for my style as a writer than I can to like the canon or classic English literature or what have you because it's just it's the way that words have come to me more so than anything else whether it's Nas or Jay or Most Def or Scarface or God, you know uh, MOP or Special Ed or Kane or whoever it is, I think so many things came to me through Rhymes and Beasts that, that has worked its way into, into the
0: books, into the creative work. That's uh, where that you say that, because I would have said, um, you kind of have a little bit of Nas to the way you, um, you speak, and then we were talking about how you were witnessing the neighborhood as you would walk your dog, and I remember there's this line from Jay-Z's Takeover where he says, Nas witnessed the neighborhood from uh, his window.
1: And 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 it's interesting, you know, because I was much more of a well. I I, I found the middle of Nash's career to be kind of disappointing.
0: You know, well, it doesn't everybody practice. though. <laughs> well, well the, yeah, 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 but but <laughs> doesn't everybody just wish Nas skipped a couple albums? But 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 this is this is
1: the thing though. I think when I saw the documentary, the Time Is O'Matic documentary.
0: Man, that was crazy,
1: was like, wow. wasn't it? Yeah, because it was. But his experience was very much like mine, like I would have been the guy that was upstairs while somebody was getting shot,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or something was always good for happening when I was just somewhere else, and you know when i when I kind of watched him do the Kennedy Center thing, which was a really, really yeah, moving crazy. thing for me yeah. um it was it was sort of like I was like, yeah, you know, I'm definitely with my sense of storytelling in that way. I can definitely identify with his life. I didn't, I don't think I really, because there there were a lot of rumors about Nas uh, for early on, you know, when he was first coming out. Oh, uh, you know, he's out there, he's shooting up clubs, he's doing this, he's that, and, you know, you know, all these producers sort of found him and calmed him down. Like, like there was, like, all this, like, buzz that he was, like, sort of gangster-type guy. Um, not to say that I necessarily bought into it, but yeah, I mean, I I think I definitely can identify with his journey. I can identify with Q Tip's journey. Um, I can identify with uh, two or less. I mean, probably in some ways uh, more so Questlove than Tariq's journey from from the roots. I um Tariq had a rough run. Mm. Uh, his his background is very, really complicated. Um, you know, Andre Malcass is probably the person I would identify with the most. Um, just to, not necessarily because I stole cars and was just, in the, but but his his perspective was sort of very similar to mine. But I think listening to all those guys uh, and having that music on bump when I was writing, um, you know, had sunk in in ways that I didn't even, you know, clearly recognize or see uh you know until much much later so yeah nas is you know nas is a really really good example you know i think I, I think nas's weakness is that he's only you nas is one of those guys that you know you gotta let somebody else produce his record mm. his, he, what i mean by that is is that he 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 has trouble to me you know um He's good with singles. He's not so good with albums. What I mean is, is that, like, the beats don't always go together. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, like if you listen to, I'll, this is, you know, I think that this is what's made Jay-Z successful in that he will set a mood for a record, and every song on that album will fit that mood. You may not remember. It might not be your favorite thing, but Jay-Z is like a creator of moments. You know, um and I think Nas is like I'm gonna tell you where I am right now. Right. And I'm not gonna sort of link that into any larger context. I'm just gonna kinda reflect what I feel like around me. I and see, that's why I you know, go, go ahead, go ahead. I
0: say it like this. Um Nas is an author who doesn't know how to edit himself. He his best albums or, yeah, have been but, when someone helps him structure whatever is going to come out where I think Jay-Z because it all lives in his head, he moves it around and twists it and shapes it and stares at it so much that his best albums have been the ones where you can tell it was thought out and this is exactly how it's going to play out.
2: Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's 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 much more methodical. Mm-hmm. And you know, it it comes out in the work that he does. But on uh, the flip side, of that,
0: as- I think that Jay-Z doesn't give you as much personal insight as Nas would. So when it came down to those stories and why people had such a strong feeling about Nas over Jay-Z early in their careers was because Nas, the story he was painting was, you almost felt like you were there. Yeah. Jay-Z will tell you a story, but it's more like, oh, this is something Jay-Z did. Nas told me the story. I was like, man, I was on the corner last night. Me and Nas were doing XYZ. Yeah, and I and I I think that that's I think one of Jay's
1: I'm, I won't call it there's kind of a, there's an emotional unavailability in what Jay does. Mm. Um, you know, he can create musical anthems, the right hook, you know, the right beat. But I think you know there are there are only a few times in all the things that he's done that it's not you know he's he's an ego rapper. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, you know what you could say, "Song Cry," you could say, "Meet the Parents." There are a couple of songs where he wasn't necessarily a moment of clarity, you know, where he wasn't necessarily coming out of that zone. Whereas I think Nas was much, much more of a reporter. You know, like I, I was, I was actually, they were playing. It's, it's one of my least favorite uh, Nas songs, but "You Owe Me" came on, you know, and and I was like, it was, it was funny to me because I was like, I think that when Nas did this record, you know, it wasn't so much about himself as much as it was about where dudes and relationships were in his life and in that champagne era thing at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, like how, how, some, how someone else might feel who was spending the money or who felt like what he had mattered more than who he was. And it didn't come out in a way that I think he would have planned, you know, cause it was like the perfect bullseye set up for, for Jay-Z to hit him with, when the battle <laughs> thing happened. But, but it, but it was kind of, it was also like, man, like, you know, you could just tell, you know, Nas would probably just hide his mind and it just came out the way it came out. <laughs> you know, and, but, but, I mean, we could talk about all day. But, think- but it's, I think, I, I, I think that's, that's sort of the sense that not to make you feel, him. I, you know, I don't I mean, I'm sure you saw it, but I mean, the Kennedy Center thing, he was just like, "Yo, man, we made this we made this record. We were in the projects. Right. And we're and we're at the Kennedy Center. And it was just this moment for me. It's like, yo, man, this dude is doing New York State of Mind at the Kennedy Center, which to me was like the whitest place on earth.
0: With the orchestra. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With the orchestra is killing it. Right. And I was like, man, like, like everyone who's listening to this,
1: it's like, man, like, we survived. Man. Like, we all, like, made it out, you know. Right. There's so many guy, guys that did not live to see this. When I was but like, we're here,
0: here. I was feeling it. Like, man, this is... I think Nas, Biggie, Jay-Z were the first ones I claimed as mine. Um, yeah. Like, those are, those are me. And it felt like we were at the Kennedy Center. We had
2: yeah.
0: finally this is how far we've come that we're here. Exactly. But I want exactly. to tie it back together real quick. Okay. Um, I have this this theory that I've been espousing to my people that best albums people ever do come from a place of either pain, sadness, or joy. Um, I think all artists' best work, um, whether it was the struggle to get there, their first album, and it's just the thing that he chased for the rest of their career. Or um, it's the, like, T.I., when he was about to go to jail, he made arguably his best album, Paper Trail, or right, uh, you, you caught an L. Like, uh, we we mentioned it when Nas and Jay-Z were, were battling each other, and then he comes out with Stillmatic, you know, years after everyone thought he couldn't make a classic album again. Um, right. When you're writing, do you have to set aside your emotion to – to hit the high points of your story or is emotion what gets you to the story being uh, what it needs to be?
1: I think, man, I kind of just get into a zone. Um, The way it works for me is is that I'll kind of have, you know, pieces of a thing already in my head. Like, sort of as I'm walking around, like, I'm kind of like... It's sort of like if... If I'm drawing the architectural plans for building, you know, one... And I've got the top floor and I've got the basement. Maybe I've got three floors in the middle, you know, but there are other floors around that I have no idea what they're like. And when I turn on the music, you know, and kind of sit down, my goal is to bridge one thing in my mind, you know, with the next thing I know. Like this, this book was very different than anything I ever written before because it's, it, it, it started with a short story I wrote in 2005, which was, a uh, a story I did under pressure um, that was, in effect, about a guy sort of organizing a heist to get money to take, to try to win his ex girl back so she wouldn't go, you know, so he could take her to Brazil because she, she complained that he never left the hood. And over time, like, I found myself writing these other versions of the same character. And I basically sat down and said, All right, there's a larger story here. And as I sat down and I put, one, you know, this thing in two thousand five together with this thing in two thousand twenty with this other thing. I was like, wow, this is all one guy's story. Like this is a mosaic. And so I found myself for the first time, just to give you you know, it's because it's the most current thing I I've I've written, I threw all the rules out. I was like, Okay, you know what? I'm gonna have a shootout happen where you know, this woman grabs a guy by the wrist and they both phase through the floor into the basement underneath me. No one who reads my books is ever gonna see this coming.
2: Like they're gonna think,
1: What the hell did I just start reading? You know what I mean? Like you know, like like Henry generally has kinda kept the street at a certain level and I sort of been acclaimed for that. But I was like, I'm just gonna throw all the rules out to make these larger points about what the human mind and what the world can accomplish and and have as much fun with it as I can. You know, I'm gonna talk about sex, I'm gonna talk about yoga, I'm gonna talk about all these things that are bugging me out and see if if it's coherent at all. And it took its, it takes its twists and turns. But when I think but when I think back, it the music was playing while I worked on it, you know what I mean? And I was living in D C in the same house every day for six years, which was so not like who I usually am. I'm kind of an out-and-about, out-in-the-world kind of person. And so it was like, let me just create the wildest world out there that I'm missing while I'm here in this space. And, it, you know, no song I had heard before, nothing could encompass all the moves that were in my head, you know? So I was just sort of playing Connect the Dots, and it came out really brave and really beautiful and I I had to decide all right I was like look this is going to be a series because I cannot get all the ideas I have in my head into this book in one volume but I'm going to bring you know I'm going to bring this character to a successful resolution so that the adventure can begin now that he's ready for it and so like that was like it was, you know, we were talking about hip-hop. I think, like, it was very much where, uh, where the first Trap Called Quest album left me. You know, like, it was, this was kind of like, hey, we're a group of guys, and we're doing an album that's about our version of New York, how we see it. And it's about sex, it's about girls, it's about being young, it's about, Food—it's about all these different oddball kinds of things from this queen's perspective. And when it's over, what you want to see is where we're going next. And I think that was my approach this time around. And as a whole, it's—you know—it's sort of like, hey, reader, roll with me on this. If you like the journey, hopefully, you want to ride with me again. And you know, that's—that's that's ultimately what I want to bring. Out of my reader. Usually, you'll, you'll come across the things you don't expect. You'll come across some things you don't know. You know, you'll fall in love with, or you'll like someone who you don't expect to like. And um my whole, you know, I think that's that's my whole deal. Like just giving you something you're not getting out of your normal life, and you're thanking Kimmy
0: Jasper for broadening your life. <laughs> Speaking of leaving a mark. Um, and broaden their lives. Let's say it's 25, 30 years from now. You know, let's even take it further. There's 80 years distant, and you're gone, you know, God rest your soul, and they need to know about who you were, know what you stood for, um, the mark that you left behind. What would they read, find out about you from your work? How, Who would they think you were? I
2: think that they would think um
1: that I was a graduate of the school of hard knocks, you know, of I was a graduate of the streets that sought to allow any reader to both sympathize and empathize with that experience. Um
2: I think that they would have a sense that I knew how important Black
1: intelligentsia is to the history and culture of being people of African descent. But it means nothing without understanding the struggle of all the people that got intelligent Black folks to where they are. So I think my work is about smarts and it's about the streets and those those things aren't mutually exclusive, but they are limbs attached to the same
2: body, you know, that are never going to be, you know, without each other. If that makes sense.
0: I think the only thing I can say to you at this point is thank you for, um, for swinging through the brownstone, as we like to say. Um, I feel like this is only a part one though. I feel like, uh, well, we- well, you know, it's, if you
1: ever want to do a party, man, uh, you you have an open invite for me. This has been so much
2: fun.
0: Yeah, man, we we can go to so many different topics. Um man, I feel like I'm just gonna start throwing topics at you to see what's next, like. Um, well, I mean,
1: hey, like, like I said, man, I, I'm, I'm, I had so much fun doing this, man. You know, if you want to do it again, the theme thing, you know, whatever else, man, man. I'm around.
0: You know, you hit like me to up. We I a whole I, podcast where we argue about hip hop. Yeah, because <laughs> I'll say this right now: Big Boy better than Andre, and I don't care who comes up on me about this one. Carried the first two <laughs> albums by himself. Well, see, but there's something I, I well, you know, see the
1: thing is that because i'm I met those guys personally, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm like but i I'll say this, you know, that's kinda you know the streets love big boy, mm-hmm. you know, I think women and artists are more in the andre um, I think it's because. Dre encompasses a breadth of experiences. Mm. You know, Big Boy sticks to one thing, but he does it with so much intensity that you love it each and every time that he does it. Uh, and I, I'm not going <laughs> it's, to. See, it's, see I, 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 like I said, I'll put it this way it's hard for me to, to choose one over the other. Mm. I think until, up until Speaker Box and Love Below, no one ever even. Tried to have that argument and, 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 in mean, in in Atlanta. They used to call them Genie and the pimp. Yeah,
0: that
1: was like <laughs> that was that was like their nickname. And 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 you know, like I said, they're my they're probably my favorite. So, so, but I but like I said, that's that's worth arguing, man. We 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 can we can do that, man. We can we can have a hip hop episode. I'll come man. back.
0: I almost jumped in with a whole conversation about Organized Noise, and if you haven't seen, anybody out there listening has not seen Organized Noise uh, documentary that came so I can, out, I think, it two are, years or, ago. The Art it of Organized Noise it yeah. should still be on Netflix, I hope. That will explain a lot about the dynamic of OutKast, and even how, and I will admit, Dre overtook him after a while, um, but that was always the plan. I'm not going to give away the documentary, but you need to go take a, a, a look and listen to that one. That is a Great documentary if you're looking for something to do this week. Um, sure, indeed. Completely off subject. We uh, we got to get out of here. We're definitely gonna do okay. this again. We might have to try and figure out how we're gonna do this like once a month. So many things yeah, we can talk about, agree and argue about. Uh, I really appreciate your time. I really do.
1: No, no, I, I, I appreciate yours, man. And let's let's figure out a way to do that, man. I had a great time.
0: I want to thank Kenji for stopping by and sharing with us his amazing presence, his amazing vision, and his thoughts on so many different topics. Please check out his work, check out his upcoming book, and please look forward to us talking with him oh so many times in the future. We love to hear from you, family, so please make sure you're leaving comments and letting us know what you think, what you want to hear, what you want to see from us in the future. Check us out at Brownstone MG on Instagram, check out Facebook, check out SoundCloud, check us out on the web at viewfromthestoop.com. You can go to Spotify and check us out on the uh, Brownstone Top 10 Plus 2. We do everything for you, family. So until next time, love.